Good morning. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. As I was thinking this morning, it's probably been close to 20 years that folks at Parksville have journeyed with us and encouraged us and supported us, and that is a real blessing. So I'm Mark. My wife's name is Catherine, and she's with her mom, who's just over 90. And um, there we go. Um, we're blessed with four children, five grandkids. One just came about a month ago, and we spent 20 years in Kenya. That's probably where Parksville intersected because you helped us to purchase land for a children's home for AIDS orphans. So we're involved in missionary education, community development. From 2006 to 2011, we had the privilege of facilitating up to 300 students from the school and 75 staff to go into the neighborhood around our school and be involved in prisons, be involved in orphanages, AIDS orphans, um, churches, widows, as, as well as environmental projects. We returned in 2011 to help with our grown children's uh, adjustment to marriage, to motherhood, to Canada, and Fellowship International asked me, they said, you've had 20 years of being cross-cultural. Vancouver, Canada is changing, and we need help. We need leaders trained that can walk across and connect with people from other cultures. <clears throat> so that's what I did. And even in that five years, it has changed so much. Yesterday morning, I got up, and I went and helped a Muslim family move. So she was from Rajasthan, he was from Bangladesh, the people that we were helping. I took a couple of Korean interns with me, and then we had a fellow from Sweden. And they had brought in Sri Lankan food, and once we finished that, then we went to a Burundian couple that we helped with their marriage, and then around 9.30 we caught the ferry over here. So that, that's just a snapshot, that's not any, um, that's every day. So how do you minister in that? How do you engage? And as Pastor Barry said, what about all these people that are coming? I have noticed a change, even since the election, of the number of women that are walking with head coverings in Vancouver. And there is a lot of thoughts. You can go on the websites of Christian organizations that are saying all sorts of different things. I know I'm big but I'm a small fish <laughs> in a big pond. And I do not affect government policy or anything, but I wanna share my heart and some of the things that um, have come to mind based upon the word of God that I think applies to this. My job description is very much based upon Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and I will read that to you. So Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they, came, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, 
and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's a very familiar passage, right? I'm sure a number of you could quote it. I trust that you will see it in light of this whole thing that we're talking about, that it will inspire you, that you will not turn off, but you will tune in. I have three points in my message, really simple. Authority given, assignment given, assurance given, which is directly from this passage. Say that with me, please. Authority given, assignment given, assurance given. I'll ask you at the end. (laughs) So Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He then says, go therefore and make disciples. All authority has been given to him. How do we view this? In one sense, he's saying he is the ultimate boss with all the power, and he's giving us an order. Do something. Remember the story in Luke 7 of the Roman centurion whose slave was sick and was about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal their servant. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Probably in your Bibles will say an example of great faith. But it also demonstrates Jesus' understanding and expectation of how his followers should respond to authority with obedience based on faith. There's another truth that comes to bear in regards to authority and power. In Ephesians 1, we are told that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So we see Jesus, who has ultimate authority, is giving us, his followers, a command. As the Lord, our Lord, He is expecting us to obey. But he also gives us his spirit, which empowers us with similar power and authority. That same power that raised Christ from the dead. I think as Christ ones, in the midst of all these people that are coming, that is the hope for the refugee. That's the second title that I put on there because I... I wanted to make sure that that came clear. 
The Bible in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, says, love refugees as yourselves. We know the, the uh, great commandment that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But it was made very clear back in Leviticus, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I want to give you a few examples of how I see that working out and how strategic I think this is for our situation. It won't be long before all of these immigrant Muslims will end up in a cultural area of Vancouver. Now, when they have just come, is the strategic time when they are out from underneath Sharia law for them to make Christians, meet Christians, and to make Christian friends. I think, I know some of you have heard the story of our Middle Eastern friend who was a cook at a nearby restaurant. Recall that we would often have discussions with him and even offer to pray for him. He would never refuse our prayers. And even over these 10, 15 years that I'd be more involved with Muslims, I have never had a Muslim refuse when I ask him if I could pray for him, even when I pray in Jesus' name. Remember that he and his wife could not conceive, so we shared biblical stories of how God opened the wombs of barren women, and we prayed for him. Some weeks later, he called all excited because his wife was expecting. Although he works at another restaurant, we still keep in touch, and every time I talk to him, I said, remember your miracle son? Oh, yes, he says. God answered your prayers. I'm an honorary uncle. And we always have an open invitation to go to his home. How could that happen? By whose authority? Now, I've always believed that God is a God of miracles, but honestly, never believed that I had the faith or the authority to be involved in such a process. But in this situation, God clearly performed a miracle, and he chose to use my friend and I to share God's story with this man and be ambassadors, exercising his authority through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And people say that the Christian life is boring. <laughs> it's the most amazing, exciting life that we could ever experience. Now, we're often amazed when we hear of physical healings, and that's, we should be. But there's another area which is miraculous, and, and I'm sure you see this all the time here. And it underscores the issue of authority. I've been volunteering at a Vancouver food bank for 15 years. I'm the tallest guy, so I stand at the door. I'm kind of like, I control. I have all the numbers, and I call. But it's a place where I can talk to people, and I can hear people's stories. One day a year ago, I engaged with a woman from Africa with a head covering. My beaded Kenyan watch strap caught her attention. And so through that, we realized that we had a mutual country in common because she was from Kenya, she was a Kenyan Somali, and I was been in Kenya for so long. So I, as, as I usually do, I said to her, I am a follower of Esau. I'm a follower of Jesus. 
I assume that you are a follower of Muhammad. She looked around, she came close, and she quietly said to me, she said, I'm really seeking to know God, not just follow a prescribed religion. She said that her life was in complete chaos and she desired to have freedom and victory. And that was the start of an amazing journey as she came into our community. And I, I get a call probably every day from her. She does not have an easy life, but things have changed. And a few months ago, she and her daughter were baptized. Coming from a Somali background, losing her husband to cancer, raising three children on her own, struggling, struggling, struggling. Her life was chaotic and filled with many destructive patterns. She would say that shaitan, the devil, had a real grip on her life and family. And she's right. The Bible, the Injil, the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the enemy, the devil, is the god of this world, indicating that Satan is a major influence on the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of people. And all the world's philosophies, education, commerce, you see the legislation that is being passed nowadays, it doesn't abide with what scripture says. Satan's called the prince of power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. He's called the ruler of this world in John 12.31. So there is an authority struggle. I mean, there are scriptures that say our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the dominions and the, the, the power in dark places. So Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So for any person to embrace Christ and follow him means that the God of this world has had to submit to the authority of Christ for the soul of that person. Transformed lives are a great testimony of the authority of God and a source of great hope for the refugee and for all of us. Because refugee lives are filled with chaos. It's very, very difficult. And there is a powerful force that's seeking to keep them under the sway of, of the enemy. And miracle of miracles, he has called us and sought to involve us in this process. There's no higher calling. It's amazing. So we have the authority. We've been given an order, and we have the authority. So first point, authority given. Second, assignment given. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Another assignment recorded in Matthew 22, the great commandment, love God and love others as yourselves. So we are called to go, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach, and to be witnesses. As you probably heard, the word go kind of means as you are going. So making disciples is not dependent upon you leaving Parksville, but rather as you are going in Parksville, your Jerusalem, or visiting Nanaimo or Vancouver, your Judea, or on your holiday to Mexico, Samaria, or on your missions trip to Africa, the uttermost parts of the world. You are to be involved in the assignment that has been given you. So what's a disciple? 
called to make disciples. It primarily refers to students of Jesus, and it's found in the New Testament in the Gospels and Acts. The New Testament refers to many or records many followers of Jesus during his ministry, but only some became disciples. I think the process of creating disciples is done through intentional mentoring, which is what I spoke about before and which is what my whole life's about right now. A term that is not actually found in the scriptures, but captures the ideas of training students of Jesus. Paul discipled Timothy, and he says, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So here I am, being a missionary since 1981, up on the stand, got a mic on. But I struggled. I struggled with this whole discipleship business. There were many opportunities that people at Rift Valley Academy would say, do you want to disciple students? Do you want to mentor students? And I missed a lot of time because I didn't think I had enough to offer and my ego was too much involved where I thought, well, what if no students sign up? What have I got to offer? Well, when I came back, it became part of my job description. So I said, okay, Lord, <laughs> I'm going to submit myself. And God has provided close to a dozen young men in this past three years that I have the privilege of mentoring. And it's not rocket science. Someone told me, Mark, you're out talking to people, just take someone along with you. So that's what we do. I take young men with me and I go out through the day. We pray together. We share together. We eat together. We minister together. My little catchphrase is creating compelling Christian community inside and outside the church. So our food bank is a community. It is sponsored by Vancouver Food Bank. It's a secular organization. We're not to proselytize. But we love people. We give people hugs. We ask them how their latest surgery has been going. We, we pray for people right there in the lineup. And people will sometimes say, I didn't want to come today, but I wanted to come for a hug. There's something compelling. Compelling means that you're drawing people in. So this morning at our church in Vancouver, there will probably be three or four Muslims that will come. And they know, they, we know they're Muslims, they know we're Christians, but they feel compelled because people will give them a hug, they'll shake their hands, they'll invite them downstairs afterwards and we'll have some halal food and we'll help in a holistic way. So one of the mentors, as I say, I've got two Koreans right now, a wonderful couple, um, but before I had a fellow from Brazil. He spent three months with me. We visited the Sikh priest at the temple, we did home visitation, we became very close to an Iraqi refugee family. And this last Friday, that same Iraqi man was attending our leadership development class, as I do that after food bank on Fridays. And I was sharing some stuff from the Voice of the Martyrs about what's happening and how ISIS is saying exactly what your pastor mentioned, saying to people, pay tax, convert, or die. And he started, my Iraqi friend started to cry. And the way we communicate is, I don't speak much Arabic. I've got a few words in there. He doesn't speak much English, but I have Viber on my phone. 
So he's sitting there, I'm sitting here, I'm typing a message, beep. He translates it, sends a message back. So he's communicating back and forth. So he showed me his phone. And he basically said, I have much, if I could speak English, I would have much to say. But I do want to say that I believe in Jesus. He has a wife. You go into his home, and there are verses of the Quran on the wall. They've got seven kids. Two of their daughters are still in Baghdad, and one of them has just been, her and her husband have been kicked out of their home, and so they don't know where to live, whether to flee to Jordan. The third son has got 15% capacity in both his kidneys, so he's on home dialysis. They would all say, except for my, the father, they would all say that they were Muslims. Should I help them? Previously in the week, two friends of his, Iraqi Kurds, came to me, Muslims, and they told a story that their brother, who's 60 years old, was living in Kirkuk, northern Iraq. And ISIS realized that his brother had relatives overseas, so they said, you get your relatives to pay us $100,000 or we'll kill you. So he fled, and they came in, they took everything of value in his house, destroyed his house, and now he's hiding in Erbil. And so these two men are coming, and they're saying, he's got a 60-year-old brother all his own in a city he doesn't know. We have a mechanics business here, and we would love to bring him here so that he could live out his remaining years in peace. what is my responsibility? Do I say, oh, you're Muslims. I'm not going to help you. I don't think so. Do I agree? I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be political here, but do I agree with the whole process of how many people were come in, have, were brought in, um, the supports that were present or not present? As I say, I'm a small fish in a big pond. God has said, Mark, this is what you are to do. I've given you the authority. I've given you assignments. These two Iraqi Kurds, I may be the only Christ follower that they will meet. And I believe this is an opportunity. I'm not paying 30000 to have them come, but I'm going to help them. I'm going to say, this is who you talk to. And I told them right away, I said, and when your brother comes, there's a place for him in our church. Relationship building is the key. Helping people move from distrust to trust. There may be fear here, but there's fear. I've talked to a Muslim woman that said, for three years I lived in Vancouver and I was afraid to go on the streets unless my husband was with me because I wore a head covering and I didn't know what people would think of me. Food, I don't know what slide we're on. There we go, food. Food is central. You need to be willing, and you have to adjust things. So now at our potlucks, we've got regular, we've got gluten-free, we've got halal, we've got um, vegetarian. Just throw another category in, halal. <laughs> but not only giving food, but receiving food. So I suffer, you know, I suffer. Someone's got to do it. 
This is an Iraqi meal that this family gave to us. Just amazing. And their only complaint with, about me is that I don't come to their house every single day. <laughs> I go and I pray with them and we share. I've given Bibles. I've given Bible apps. Service. So I'm sure that you can all see how this leads to hope for the refugee. Helping them to belong. Helping them to form a community. And I've said this before. If we want a Muslim who does not compartmentalize his life, and his life is all relationship Islam, if we say to him, leave all your community, leave everything, put your life at risk, and we'll give you an hour and a half on Sunday morning. We'll shake your hand, we'll give you a hug, and then we'll say, see you next week. Doesn't cut it. We need to provide a community, an ummah, to welcome people into. And that's going to involve food, and that's going to involve hospitality, and that's going to involve time. But I love being with these folks. In Acts 1.8, he told me I could take a little longer. I'm probably really going over now. <laughs> in Acts 1.8, we're called to be witnesses. Again, in my younger days, I felt a lot of pressure about this. I knew I was supposed to share my faith, but I didn't feel qualified because I didn't think I could answer all the questions. And so I would develop a friendship, Campbell River, I'd develop a friendship with my neighbors, and then I would feel awkward about raising the faith question because I was afraid people would feel like I was setting them up and that they were a project rather than a friend. So I'd try to live a good life and hope that they would ask questions. And they didn't usually ask many questions. So I found so much more freedom now. Maybe it helps being 60 because I really don't care as much. But, you know, I just, I'm called to be a witness. I'm not called to be a prosecutor or a lawyer, just a witness. I'm not called to be a judge, just a witness. A witness tells what he or she has observed and experienced. Someone can strongly agree with our opinion or our conclusion, but they can't really disagree with our story. So become proficient at telling your story what your life was like before Christ, how you came into a relationship with Christ, what has your life been like since you gave the control of your life to him. Write it down. Share it with a friend or a coach. Make it interesting and brief, five minutes or less, and memorize it so you can say it naturally and conversationally. So you're talking about coffee and you say, oh man, the Lord was really good to me yesterday. And just carry on. doesn't matter whether they clam up. The pressure is off because we just have to be witnesses and tell our story. And most people are interested in our stories. Not surprisingly, when we moved, the place that we got, the, the owners are a Fijian Muslim couple. <laughs> it's everywhere I look. And so when I was visiting them, paying our first month's rent, and they were asking, you know, why were you in Africa? I could tell my story. And they were very attentive and appreciative and even want to hear more. But we have to have a credible witness. Our actions must support our words. We do not treat people as projects. Another thing that's really helped me feel at ease is that I now declare my stripes almost from the outset of a relationship. Next one. It's a little weird. It's an African okapi, so it's got my African flavor in it. I'm a little weird too, but declare my stripes from the beginning. Especially with people from other cultures, 
I will say right from the get-go, I'm a follower of Jesus. If they want to reject me, okay, never happened. If they don't, I feel I have the liberty to talk naturally about my faith and my stripes because that's who I am and that's how it all started up. And I can't think of a time when someone was offended by my identification as a follower of Jesus. One time I was in a place and there was a bunch of drunks and I mentioned that and one guy says, are you undercover? He said, no, 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 no. Are you undercover? No, be quiet, he's a pastor. <laughs> but it's especially easy if you're talking to Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists because their life is, they're interested in talking about these things. And they, they have a faith. I find it harder to talk to Caucasians. So two of my friends include an imam at a mosque and a head priest at a Sikh temple. Our friendship started by me going in saying, hi, I am a follower of Jesus. He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You're my neighbor. I want to love you. The, the imam says, boy, I've never had that happen before. But we're good friends. He asked me to speak at his multi-faith multi things. So I'm able to, to share a credible witness for Jesus. The, the Sikh priest, when he heard we were needing a place to stay, he called me up and he said, there is the Gudwara and there's a bunch of houses that we have at the Sikh temple. You could rent one of those if you want. Well, we had got a place, basement suite in a Muslim home, but so we declined and said it was a very kind offer. But I kind of chuckled with Catherine. I said, what are we going to put in our next prayer letter? We are now living on the grounds of the local Sikh temple. <laughs> My final observation about assignment relates to the direction given by Jesus to reach out to people regardless of their country of origin, all the nations. And I think this is particularly important for us to hear in this age when Canada is bringing in many people. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So there will be worshipers in heaven from Syria, from Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Jordan, and even North Korea. So let's not limit ourselves to who we share with. Authority given, assignment given, assurance given and behold I am with you always even to the end of the age what an amazing promise other verses say that his rod and his staff will comfort us that he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother that he will never leave us nor forsake us that's great news that should give us such encouragement in the middle of the word encouragement is the word courage through a recent convert the same woman that was baptized, who's telling all her neighbors about Jesus, we got to go into a home of a Hindu woman who was struggling and because she was having all these body pains, her kids were waking up with nightmares, and she couldn't sleep. So we went into her home, and in the back bedroom was a shrine of a Hindu god, a particularly nasty Hindu god. And she was preparing food and giving to him every every day so we talked with her and we said 
if you want to be free from this evil presence, this is what's going to be involved. We can pray for you. We can pray for deliverance. But you need to give your life. There's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So she considered it. She came to the church, and then she said, no, I can't leave. So she lives on in her suffering, in oppression. So going into this with a young mentee, uh, it's, it's very encouraging <laughs> that Jesus says, I am with you always. You may not go into these sorts of overt power encounters, and I don't do that very often, but every time you share your story as a faithful witness, you can expect opposition and you can take courage that he is with you. So in conclusion, Matthew 8, 28. Authority given, assurance given, uh, assignment given, and assurance given. The God of the universe has all authority and has called us to obey him. He has empowered us with his authority to do what he has asked through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What other authority do we need? He has given us an assignment to go make disciples, witness, baptize, and teach. That's pretty clear. He has given us a promise of assurance that he will be with us always. Who else could we possibly need to be with us? Some Next slide, please. Some people who race motorcycles or do other things, they'll just say, just give it. Rev the motorcycle. So just give it, because it's a given. He's given us all that we need. Finally, if there's any way that I can share my particular experience with a cross-cultural setting with you, by having you visit, feel free to contact me. There's some prayer cards, there's some things, an update on Gorica, and there's a business card there that you could give me a call. Would love to have you come. It's not that far. And we'll have a good time in Vancouver. Thank you. <laughs>